The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk, and I am Mitch LaFawn. I have got a great, great episode for you today from the band Sons of Apollo. It is keyboardist Derek Sherinian. I have known Derek for many, many years. We talk about their new album, Psychotic Symphony, and we reminisce back to his days with Alice Cooper, Kiss, and of course, Billy Idol. After the break, I come back with Noel E. Monk. Yes, he was a tour manager and more for Sex Pistols, Van Halen. He has got a new book, of course, called Running With the Devil, a backstage pass to the wild times, loud rock, and the down and dirty truth behind the making of Van Halen. Whew, excuse me while I catch my breath. But uh, that said, it is an absolutely great, great book. It is, you know, I'm not a big avid reader of, of books in general, but... Rock books I have always found are just one-sided and look at me, I'm so great. And, but this one I got a very different uh, feel to it. And so I do recommend that you pick up uh, The Running with the Devil by Noel E. Monk. And uh, a lot of great Van Halen content in our chat. And uh, some of the things he says will be uh, somewhat uh, stunning or shocking to some. But uh, take a listen. It is a great, great interview. And then at the end, I have um, from the band Act of Defiance, formerly of Megadeth. It is guitarist Chris Broderick. We talk about their new album, Old Scars, New Wounds. It is a somewhat short interview coming in just at about 15 minutes because uh, towards the end of it, his uh, or our cell phone connection recording thing uh, fell apart, but the uh, interview is great. And of course, uh, do check out Old Scars, New Wounds by uh, Act of Defiance. And then, um, before we get to these interviews, let me just talk about this new tour that was announced recently, Judas Priest. They have a new album called Firepower, and in the spring of 2018, they are doing a North American tour, the Firepower Tour, and they are bringing along with them Saxon, which I just saw in Montreal back in, trying to think, it was either late September or early October, with a UFO, absolutely destroyed the venue. I mean, just fabulous. I mean, the songs... And the performance were, were, were fabulous. So I'm looking forward to seeing them again. But they are bringing with them Black Star Riders. North America has never had a chance to see Black Star Riders. This band uh, it consists of Robbie Crane, formerly of Rat. Damon Johnson, who spent some time with Alice Cooper. And of course his own band, Brother Kane. Highly successful in uh, the 90s. Scott Gorm of Thin Lizzy. And, you know, the band had been touring for many, many years as Thin Lizzy. And finally they decided, you know what, it's time to make a new album back in 2013 called All Hell Breaks Loose. And the decision was made, we cannot take this lineup with Damon and, and stuff and call it uh, Thin Lizzy. It just it wouldn't feel right, and Phil Lynott fans would, of course, uh, rightly so, protest. But uh, So they went ahead, and they changed the band's name to Black Star Riders. And that first album, All Hell Breaks Loose, absolutely essential rock listening 
And then, a couple of years later, 2015, the Killer Instinct comes back. Killer Instinct was my 2015 album of the year. Uh, especially the deluxe edition that has uh, a whole bunch of acoustic tracks as uh, bonus tracks. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Now, here we are in 2017, and I have declared L.A. Guns the missing piece as album of the year. And I tweeted that out, and I put it on Facebook, and people wrote back and said, Hey, 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 what about Black Star Riders Heavy Fire? And my brain went, well, that came out in 2016, so of course it can't be album of the year in 2017. And then, of course, I realized that I had played it so, so much that it just felt like this album that had been with me for for many years. turns out it came out earlier in 2017, so I'm not going to recant or take back my my declaration of L.A. Guns, uh, the missing piece, as being album of the year, but uh, I'm going to put it this way. From January uh, through June, the first six months of the year, album of the year is Black Star Riders Heavy Fire. And from July until December, second part of the year, L.A. Guns Missing Piece, uh, the missing piece is album of the year. So basically, I have a tie for album of the year. Uh, basically, flip a coin. Uh, you know, heads, it's Heavy Fire by Black Star Riders. Play it, love it, enjoy it. It is, it is absolutely... Uh, you know, I'm going to say delightful. <laughs> Why not? Why not use a word like delightful? Delightful is a delightful word. Uh, but then on the other side, uh, you know, tails will be L.A. Guns, the missing piece. So just take out a quarter and flip it. And whatever it comes up out, that's your album of the year for that day. And uh, either way, if you buy L.A. Guns, the missing piece, or you buy Black Star Riders, Heavy Fire, you are not going to be disappointed. Both absolutely solid, solid, solid rock records. Um, And of course, uh, Sons of Apollo, Psychotic Symphony, another one. You know, 2017 in terms of great solid albums has been absolutely uh, solid. Just a bunch of great albums. Anyway, uh, the point being, Black Star Riders are coming to North America with Judas Priest. They were last here under the moniker of Thin Lizzy. But this time, Black Star Riders, as far as I know, it is their for- first North American appearance, excluding um, cruises. I think they, they played on some of the cruises off the coast of Miami, but I'm not going to count that in terms of being on the... Is it the continental U.S. or the contiguous U.S.? Probably the continental U.S. As far as being on soil in North America, Canada, and U.S., it'll be their first appearance, and... If you haven't heard of this band or you haven't checked out All Hell Breaks Loose, The Killer Instinct, or Heavy Fire, you must absolutely do that uh, now. Right now. Well, no. Finish listening to the show, and once the show is done, then go check out the music. Let's, let's do it that way. <laughs> I don't want to lose the listeners. Um, but there you go. And uh, Damon Johnson, of course, who was in Brother Kane, Alice Cooper, will be on an episode uh, upcoming. I have uh, recently interviewed him, and I will have that for you uh, shortly. So here we go. Without further ado, let's get right over to Derek Sherinian of Sons of Apollo, new album, Psychotic Symphony. Here is the one, the only, Derek. We are speaking with Derek Sherinian, keyboardist for the great band Sons of Apollo. And uh, Derek, always, always a pleasure to, to have you on. Always a pleasure, Mitch. How are you? Good, good. Um, you know, when I say great band Sons of Apollo, I really mean it. The music speaks for itself. It is 
such a great, great album. And congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you very much. We're very proud of the outcome. Um, when Mike and I first decided to pull the trigger on this, the original plan was to do a, a prog metal band, kind of like what we were doing in Dream Theater. But once we started writing and once we got Bumblefoot in the mix, all of our hard rock and classic rock influences really started just coming to the forefront. And so it really turned into something a lot different than we intended. So if I had to analyze it, I'd call us a sick-ass uh, a rock band, hard rock band with sick-ass chops. And we've mastered the art of strategic wankery, where we have all the virtuosity of any band out there, of all right, the top right, right. bands, except we, we put it in strategically so it doesn't compromise the songwriting. All of our songs have killer hooks in it and are very rock-oriented. You listen to the vocals, it's very listenable, very rock and roll. We wanted to stay away from all of the cliche prog metal vocals of the high, hey, yeah, the opera and the breathy, uh, uh, and then the fake anger vocals, like, I'm mad, but I really have nothing to be mad about. And so we wanted to get rid of all of that cheesy stuff and keep it very listenable because we want to reach a wider range of people than just the prog metal community there. Yeah. So, so talk to me about, cause here you are with, um, uh, Portnoy, Mike putting together this sort of project. When does it sort of turn into a band or, or is Sons Apollo just sort of your project with Mike, with these other guys in it? No, I'm going to correct you right now. Sons of Apollo is a major full-on band we have a major label deal we have a major management and we're going on a major world tour coming up in february so this is everyone every member's priority we've all blocked out our calendar for 2018 for sons of apollo and the bottom line is this mitch we all feel that this band has the potential to generate more heat than any of our other band or projects and people have a tendency to go where it's warm. And I think that Sons of Apollo is going to explode next year. That's my my uh, prediction. Well, you know, I have to say I agree with you. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I agree with you for, for many reasons. You look at Black Country Communion. Great band. Great music. Great albums. Nothing to complain about. But we know that Joe Bonamassa has an incredible career outside of that. And so you're always sort of going to be, and I, and I don't mean to be disparaging, but sort of waiting around for it to happen with him and scree, free up his schedule. And Art of Anarchy with Bumblefoot is great, but, you know, Scott Stapp's do. But this one here, musically, is tight. The players on it are tight. The, it, there's just nothing where you look at it and go, oh, that's not going to work. Too. It's just perfect. And so... No, it is. Sons of Apollo, pound for pound, man for man. I think we're the sickest rock band in the world with the sickest musicians on each of our instruments and one of the things about us is we're like the marvel superheroes every player has a very distinct signature sound and style and when you hear any of us play you know who it is because our dna is just that strong on our instruments when we come together it's like a fucking explosion and you know we just haven't heard anything like this in rock before this kind of swagger in the playing and with the virtuosity. Yeah, I agree. You know, now, this band has total. This band has total octopus pedigree. We've run out of arms to list all the major credits of all the members in this band. I mean, it's sick. Now, talk to me about the album coming together because I had spoken to Ron, 
And he sort of said that you just sort of got into the studio for, uh, you know, a week or two weeks and all this music came out. Very sort of old school, sort of 1970s Sabbath and Kiss where you just sort of... Um, was it that organic or did you have on your end a lot of songs sitting around for five years, 10 years, 15 years where you say, oh, okay, here's a project for them? Or was it like, hey, we need to write an album and let's get going and two weeks later we're done. How was it for you, the writing process and putting it together? Well, it was about a year, it was about a year ago that Mike and I decided to pull the trigger on this. And so I started writing immediately and demoing up ideas and sections that I thought would be great for this band. And one of the first things that I turned into Mike was an 11-minute piece called God of the Sun, which was a trilogy. And when Mike heard it, he was blown away and he says, you know what, this is great. Let's leave it how it is. And he goes, I hear this being the album opener. And all these months later, he, it was the album opener. He called it right away. And so I was really flattered and stoked that he was so into uh, what I was doing. And that just inspired me to keep writing and writing. And so when we got in the studio March 1st, I had all of these ideas and starting points that I brought in and Bumblefoot brought in some great riffs and song ideas as well. And then we just threw it in the stew and, and then mainly Fortnoy, Bumblefoot and myself put most of the record together. Billy Sheehan came in like three, four days later and contributed to some of it. And then the next phase was to get a vocal performance that was on par with the killer music tracks that we had just written. So there was a lot of pressure on Jeff Scott Soto to deliver. And so Mike and I worked with, with Jeff getting all the melody lines and lyrics. So everything was just fucking killer. And I think that Jeff did an amazing job on Psychotic Symphony. And he's going to be able to pull all this stuff off alive. No problem, because we kept everything in his range. So there's no straining. There's nothing worse than going to see your favorite band and the singer is straining to hit the notes because he used studio trickery in order to uh, to record it. And yeah. so everything that you're going to hear from us that we that's on our record, we're going to be able to pull off live. Now, now, now talk to me about the, the band members because you and Mike had this project going on, like you said, about a year ago and you were thinking of putting songs together. Was it a natural... Uh, I mean, did you lead naturally over to Billy Sheehan and over to Jeff Scott, or did you have a list of like five guys that could be vocalists and five guys that could be bassists? Tell me how you sort of reached no. out to these guys. Well, we knew we played with Billy Sheehan uh, in 2012 with PSMS with Tony McAlpine. So Mike and right. I knew that Billy was the obvious guy on bass. And then it was Mike who suggested Bumblefoot and Jeff Scott Soto. And I think that they were great choices as uh, there's just a really great blend between all of our styles in this band. Yeah, it really is. And, and when you look at Jeff in terms of doing stuff with Ingve Momstein and then Journey, I mean, he really can cover the entire gamut. I mean, if you want a rock song, Jeff's there for you. If you want a prog song, Jeff's there for you. If you want a ballad, Jeff's there. Like, he's really got it down. Um, Black Country Communion was also going on at this time. Talk to me about deciding what sort of goes into pile A, Sons of Apollo, and what sort of goes into pile B, Black, in terms of your songwriting and your contribution to both those albums? Well, there's no pile. There was uh, Black Country Communion 4 was written by Jace, by uh, Joe and Glenn. And so Jason and I were not part of the writing, so there was really no pile <laughs> to put anything in. 
it just was what it is. We went in to, uh, at the very first of the year, Glenn Hughes had all the demos on his iPhone. And we're in like a million dollar East West studio in, in Hollywood, but we couldn't figure out a way to plug the iPhone into the, the uh, SSL right. speaker. So we were just like listening through the speakers of the iPhone, taking notes, and then we go in the studio and, and learn it and record it and then move on to the next song. And so that's how we did it. And we recorded that whole record in five days, something like that. Yeah, and, and there's a certain magic in recording albums that way. I, I think when you look back again to the, the 70s and the Kiss days and the early Black Sabbath and they were doing two albums a year, there was a certain magic in the imperfections that were left on the album. Well, right? there is, and you have to have rock and roll pedigree and experience to do that. I mean, most guys will go in there with an iPad and, and a, a slew of apps and, oh, how do I rock? Let me download the rock app or let me rock download the feel app. You know, you just can't do that. You either have that kind of pedigree and experience or you don't. And especially in a major band like Black Country Communion, where you're dealing with Joe Bonamassa, who's the best in the world uh, on blues guitar, Jason with his, you know, pedigree and Glenn Hughes, who's a rock and roll hall of famer. You need to be able to adapt on the spot, not only be a chameleon, but also be a stylist and have to create this sonic persona right on the spot. And that's how we roll in Black Country Communion. And I feel blessed to have those skills in order to keep up with those guys. Yeah, you really do. Now, now, now BCC4, a great album. And of course, Kevin Shirley does a, you know, he oversaw it, does a great job. Um is it frustrating for you though to come in and just be sort of the guy who puts in the keyboard parts and not be more involved in the in the writing process and sort of the musical vision of it? And is that even yes, the right? Yes, it is. Okay. It is frustrating because in on some of the past records, Jason and I co-wrote uh, on the records. Like Jason and I were the main writers on the song "Save Me," which was on Black Country Two, and I still think that's one of the best songs in the catalog. And hopefully, we'll be playing that live. Uh, next year. But yeah, I mean, I'm always want to contribute. I always have something to offer the sound, but in black country communion, it was always put together as, as Joe and Glenn's thing. And Jason and I were brought in to supplement those guys. So it is what it is. And, you know, the band doesn't do full-time touring. And even if it's just regulated to doing one record a year and a handful of shows, I think it's great because I really love all those guys in the band and Kevin Shirley, and it's a, a great opportunity and it gives me a chance to uh, to slow down my plane and, and really get some old school uh, riffage know, riffage in there. In there. And it's, yeah, it's great. It's a nice. It's a different from whole, uh, the whole uh, Planet Apollo vibe. So, so talk to me about BCC though. Now, because Sons of Apollo, the album is like I said, it's fantastic. If that takes Thank off you. and it becomes your main thing, is BCC sort of like, how do we sort of put that now? Is it on hold? Is it on hiatus? Is it sort of the one, the thing we do for two months every year? Like, because, you know, the band sort of had broken up and then got back together. And like, how do you see the future of black country? BCC is a glorified uh, super project. Okay. Where Sons of Apollo is going to be a bonafide uh recording and touring entity okay so that's the best way to describe it now in terms of accelerating the pace because you you have this album you're going to do all of 2018 on the road do you want to see the band get back sometime let's say in september of 2018 and already get to work on a second album 
or do you want to sort of do this long extended two year album cycle like because you know you've got sort of nine songs but when you go to a show you want to see 20 songs so so hey the bottom line is if we're out there touring and there's a huge demand and people want us to come around twice we're going to stay out on the road and then when that's that record's played out then we'll go back in the lab and and make another record. You know, the people are going to dictate how long we're out on the road. So, I mean, you and I can sit here and say, yeah, we'll get back there in September. But if Psychotic Symphony takes off like we think and hope that it's going to, then, you know, we might stay out deep into uh, 2019. You never know. Let's hope. And by the way, I've spoken to both uh, Bumblefoot and Jeff about this project, and now I'm speaking to you. And I really sense from those interviews and conversations, there's a genuine, genuine excitement about this band. It's not just, hey, we've got some interviews to do and some PR bullshit to go through. There's a genuine, like, almost childlike excitement of, like, this band. There is, is because yeah. we made a fucking, we made a masterpiece record. I know that that's a bold claim, but it's it's factual. It's true. I wouldn't disagree. And, I mean, I really wouldn't disagree. Know, and you would know, Mitch, you've yeah. you listened to a lot of records. And, yeah. and, and I know I'm talking a lot of shit, but the bottom line is this record backs it up. And uh, we all feel the same way about it. And we're all excited about it. And we want to take this thing out on the road. The beautiful thing about Sons of Apollo is that every member is encouraged to contribute and and participate in the writing and we want everyone to play at their top peak performance and and shine in in throughout the album you know part of the allure of this band is the marvel superheroes angle where we're all superheroes on our instrument so we want everyone to play and and shine as much as possible i'm going to tell you what the allure maintain great songs songwriting and and yeah. Great songs. That's first and foremost. The the virtuosity is just icing on the cake. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you what the allure of the album is to me, because, you know, you look at Bumble when he was in Guns N' Roses, and you go, man, this guy's talented, but he's stuck playing those songs. And you, when you're in, like, Billy Idol, you're like, the guy's fucking talented, but he's in, you know, and you always had these sort of constrictions that you had to stay within the Billy Idol mold, and the Guns N' Roses mold. And here is a band where you guys get to be you. And you get to show the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many bands get to start off their album with an 11 minute trilogy? <laughs> I mean, how many bands that A, have the balls to do it, and B, how many bands could write it, you know? Yeah. And, and it's nice to finally see all of you step out of the shadows of some of those other. And I don't mean that in a dis- disrespectful way, but obviously, when you're in Billy Idol, you can't have an 11 minute trilogy because that's not what he does. And it's nice to see you be able to do that. Um, but let me look at some of that old stuff. Uh, and I'm going to, we've talked about this before, but, you know, it's Kiss and it always excites me. Uh, the Revenge Tour, where you were off stage playing for Kiss. Um, just just for the fans listening to, to me on this platform, let's go over that. for. How do you get that gig? And, and how was that for you to sort of, you know you're there and you know you're on tour and you can tell your mom and your dad, hey, I'm on tour but a lot of the world doesn't know. Talk to me about that time, 92. Well, I'll say this. I'll, I'll say this. I got the gig through Eric Singer, who uh, was and still is one of my very best friends. And so he got me in for the audition, and I got hired immediately. And yes, it was awkward being off stage. It was unlike anything I've ever done before. But on the other side, it was Kiss, and I was looking at it as a great opportunity to be exposed to uh 
Gene and Paul and watch how they ran the band and, and watch from the business aspect. And so, you know, I, I took that all in when I decided to take the gig. And I'll say that for the three months that we were on tour in the U.S., I had more fun, even though being off stage on that tour than, than many of my other tours. It was a blast. Gene and Paul are awesome and are true innovators in the uh, music business that I don't think they get credit for a lot of the stuff they invented. I think they invented the whole merchandising business and rock and roll, and they're in charge. Uh, they're responsible for the whole meet and greets and after shows yeah. and, and a lot of other things. Well, And you know what? Well. They're also responsible for the big show because before there was Kiss, there were bands that would show up in their jeans and their flannel shirts. Well, and... no, there was Alice Cooper. They basically took the Alice Cooper right. theater show concept and put it on steroids and Viagra and, and turned it up 10 notches. Right, but then when the 80s bands, your Bon Jovis and your Motley Crues came along, they they took from that Kith ethos and said, oh, okay, you want bombs, we'll give you bombs. You want firecrackers? So, you know, the Kiss was very, very innovative and very important especially like you said to the merchandising and the meet and greet uh, you know they they were the first they were the first um, absolutely and so i have very fond memories uh but, of working with them and they've always been very nice to me yeah great band i mean you, you got to really respect paul and gene they really anybody who's had 45 years in this business as you know has to be respected because most guys come in and do one year two years three years sometimes even a month and you're back to being an accountant somewhere. So, you know, a lot of respect. Right. But yeah. what, what do yeah. you learn from them? Because you sat back there and you watched, and you, you said you were watching the business. What are some of the things that you take away? What are some of the memories that here we are in 217, you go, uh, you know what? I learned that in Des Moines, Iowa on that KISS tour. Like, what are some of the things that really stuck well, out? I remember in rehearsals once a week, the accountant would come in with, checks and a ledger and and gene and paul i I learned that any check that went out of kiss that was over five hundred dollars gene and paul required both of their signatures which i thought was awesome and smart because these guys have been through hell before in the 70s and lost a lot of money letting people handle and manage their funds in blind faith and so they learned that that uh, they're going to take matters into their own hands and have first count of the loot. And so anything that goes out, they know what it is. And I think that that's a good practice. And, and I think that Mike and I, whether, you know, we like to think of it or not, we're kind of like Gene and Paul in that way where we're on top. We we're passionate about the music, but at the same time, we're both very business savvy. We both have been through a lot of shit, uh, musically over the last 25 years and we're not going to let ourselves get screwed and and that's that's actually very wise and i'll ask you one last kiss related question um for you professionally though how did it help like once you 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 came off the tour and i guess you can sort of put it on your cv does that automatically lend credibility to you or is it like well yeah but you were off stage come on like how did that play no it absolutely it okay. absolutely gives credit because the bottom line is i i uh, was out there working under their employee for four months and you know i think that says a lot those guys are you know demanding employers and the fact that i made it all the way through the tour without getting fired like a lot of the monitor people uh throughout the, the tour 
I mean, I think that says a lot. And I think from anyone else that looks at it, that's part of an important part of my, my pedigree, you know, along with Alice Cooper, along with Buddy Miles, along with, you know, Ingve Melmstein, all those guys, it's all part of the, the tapestry, the octopus pedigree. Yeah, really well. And, and by the way, I think Ingve Malmsteen, that was one of the, t- the first times we met. We, you came into Montreal and we went to a Chinese restaurant. And uh, that I was remember. A, yeah, we should definitely do that again once we get Sons of Apollo to Montreal. That's, that's a, it's a necessary, I think. Um, For sure. Uh, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on the past because I really, I really believe in Sons of Apollo. I really think that you've made something special here. And I'm, it's not just interview bullshit i mean it it really is a unique special album but thank you thank you but you know listen i grew up on alice cooper billy idol and kiss so um just talk to me quickly about about working with alice because here's another guy who you know sort of got this reputation the 70s and and deservingly so you know drunk and blah 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 and but after he cleaned himself up and after he came back and had you in the band, he was really a tight machine. What was that like for you, seeing this guy that was very, very focused on, on regaining his career? And business-wise as well, he's played it very, very smart. Um, what was that like, that, that time with Alice? It was the most exciting uh, time of my life. It was 1989-90 on that trash tour because I went from being a struggling uh, club musician to overnight signing with Alice Cooper's band and, and going on MTV, being on a world tour, playing arenas. And it was just a thrilling time. Al Petrelli on guitar, Eric Singer was on drums. And, you know, I'm still best friends with both of those guys to this day. And it was just all so new and exciting. I mean, I was green as the Irish countryside, but it was like at the very ass end of the 80s hair metal days where it was just fucking crazy out there on tour. It was a lot of fun. And then the next year, when all the uh, Seattle and Flannel bands came in, it just dried up. And then we went on the Alice Cooper Hey Stupid tour, and it was like quarter arenas in Europe and just, it was over, you know, at that point in 91, it was done. And it was all about, you know, like Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, Nirvana. And so uh, that's what happened there. But my time with Alice was amazing. And Chef Gordon, there's another business uh, mentor that was uh, very helpful. Yeah, Yeah, he was great. Shep is, Shep is, uh, and, and then uh, before we get back to Sons, I need to ask you about Billy Idol. You were on an album uh, with him called Devil's Playground, came out in 2005. To me, yeah. that is one of the best albums he's ever made. You look at songs like Rat Race, World Coming Down, Super Overdrive. I mean, just fantastic rock songs, punk songs, whatever you want to call them. Um, talk to me about working with Billy and being on his album and, and that album, because it got, it got terribly overlooked, I believe. Um, what was yeah. that? Well, tell me about those days. Well, there wasn't a lot of keyboard playing on that album, if I recall, but I know that that album was heavily written by Brian Tishy, the drummer. And I, as I recall, what happened was Brian started off as the drummer and somehow Billy heard that Brian 
uh, wrote songs. And so he asked Brian to submit a song. And then after uh, Billy heard that song scream, Billy made Brian his main songwriting partner instead of Steve Stevens. And so all of a sudden, Brian Tishy ended up writing most of that record, I think, like 80, 90%. It's a while ago, so I don't recall the exact amount, but I know that Brian is a huge part of the music of that record and, and probably some of the lyrics and vocals too. Yeah, he really is. And, and, and of course, Brian was very um, instrumental in getting Billy to do that Happy Holidays uh, Christmas album, which you, of course... Now, appear- the, now I think that that album is, is grossly overlooked. I, I play I a love it. of songs on that, and I think my jazz solo on uh, Oh Christmas Tree is one that really needs to be examined and looked at. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> no. it's pretty funny, though, I mean, because I don't really play that style, but it's actually a really good piano solo. But that record, I think, should, uh, you know, you listen to Billy sing Flossie the Snowman and you don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling in your uh, your throat. I'll, I'll call you a, a cold son of a bitch because that album is a feel-good album. And I think it, I break it out every winter and I think everyone else should, too. No, you know, jokes aside, I own the album. I bought it. And I think it's absolutely hilarious. When, when Christmas rolls around, I put it on every year. And in fact... And I'll tell you truthfully, my mom came over once and she heard this. She goes, oh, who's that? And I said, oh, it's Billy Idol. And she's like, oh. And she made me buy one for her. I had to actually scour eBay to get my mom a copy of it. And we both love it. And she plays it all all of December in her car. So, so you know, kudos to that. Um, sons yeah, of I don't know that you – and I, I know that that's like a taboo subject around that camp. You're not supposed to bring up that – Christmas album because I guess Billy's not happy with it, but I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's you know some of his better work in the last you know few years, last in the last years. I mean, come on, you you have to take that sort of tongue in cheek. It, it's it is Billy Idol doing Christmas songs, and it's exactly what you would expect. It's Billy Idol doing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, and and I love it. And if Billy doesn't love it, well, that's too bad. But it's 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 fun. It's camp. It. it Makes you feel merry, you know, which is what you're supposed to feel at that time. Immersive. Hey, I'll, I'll say this, though. Some of my fun, uh, most fun also, along with Kiss, was with Billy Idol. He was just a pleasure to tour with. He's always uh, fun, and he treated me really nicely, and and I enjoyed playing with him a lot, and I always wish Billy Idol the best. Yeah, He's a I, good guy. I, I absolutely agree. And let's get back to Sons of Apollo. In terms of hitting the road... Uh, you know, Jeff and, and Ron, and, and you also mentioned that 2018, you're blocking out. How do you build the band? Do you sort of go that route where it has to be larger than life and it's going to be all the European festivals and the Canadian festivals? and the, Or do you say, listen, it's going to be down and dirty and we get in the clubs and we play, even if it's 10 people, we're fucking just going to do this and we're going to build it brick by brick. What, what's sort of the, the game plan? And at this point, uh, Derek was called away to do another interview, but I did get one final word in, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed this. Thank you for listening. Please check me out at Twitter, at Mitch Lafon. Let's finish with Derek right here. Well, no, don't blow him off. We'll just say, hey, uh, thank you, and uh, we'll, we'll do a part two in, in, like a, in a month or two. How's that? Anytime, whenever you're ready. Uh, Sons of Apollo, out October 20th, Inside Out, Record Sony Music. Psychotic Symphony, you can get us at uh, sonsofapollo.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
Mitch, yeah. thank you very much. Cheers. Have a good one. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVon. Mitch LaVon. Bear Mattress is designed for optimal cooling, comfort, and muscle recovery so you can sleep better and perform at your best every day. Go to bearmattress.com, that's B-E-A-R mattress.com, and use code ROCK50 to take $50 off your new mattress. The Bear Mattress uses eco-friendly materials and was developed with insights from sleep experts, professional athletes, and engineers to create a super comfortable and supportive sleep that is up to seven times cooler than traditional foam mattresses. The Bear Mattress uses FDA-determined salient textile technology so your body can recover faster, sleep better, and improve performance. Buying a mattress in a store can cost thousands of dollars, but Bear Mattress starts at just $500, and every size is under $1,000. The Bear Mattress is made in the USA, sold online and ships free right to your doorsteps, making it easy and convenient for you, my loyal, wonderful listeners. Buying a Bear Mattress online is completely risk-free with a 100-night in-home trial. You get a hundred nights to try out the mattress and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you 100% of your money. That's right, a hundred nights absolutely risk-free with no hidden charges or fees. Name the best mattress for active lifestyles by Gear Patrol. Go to Bear Mattress, that's B-E-A-R Mattress com today and use promo code ROCK50 for $50 off your purchase. And tell them Mitch sent you. That'll always get you an extra something. Pretty sure. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to uh, Rock Talk. And a big, big thank you to Derek Sherinian for that great, great interview. Before I move on to my next interview with Noel E. Monk, a behind-the-scenes guy with Van Halen, to talk about his new book. And hold on, I'm going to have to take a breath for this. <sighs> Running with the Devil, a backstage pass to the Wild Times, Loud Rock, and the down and dirty truth behind the making of Van Halen. Whew, okay, that's a title. But it's a great book. Uh, it really is a compelling, compelling story. So we spend our time talking about the uh, his time with the band. Lots and lots of love from Noel for David Lee Roth and the uh, David Lee Roth era of the band. So if you're a fan of that era, you're going to be sitting back going, yep, I agree with you, and you're going to love everything he says. On the other hand, if you like the Sammy Hager era, ooh, you are going to find this chat very, very... Uh, long and probably very, very frustrating. In fact, you will probably be cursing at your, what, whatever you're listening to, uh, you know, your iPhone, whatever you're going to be going, Aah! what are you doing? Uh, I personally love both eras of the band. I really see it as two separate bands. I mean, yes, yes, you've got Eddie and yes, you've got Alex and yes, but the David Lee Roth stuff, if you want to get down, dirty, rock and roll in your face, you have got it. And if you're more into the melodic rock, big ballads, big songs, big hooks, Sammy Hager. Either way, if you're a fan, you win. 
Um, some won't agree with me. Some will say it's only Dave, and some will say it's only Sammy. I like them both. Should the band have been called Van Hager after? No. You know, not necessarily. Um, but uh, you can't deny I mean, come on. Uh, the F-U-C-K album is fantastic. I mean, it truly is. OU8112? <laughs> okay, not as fantastic. In fact, kind of horrible. Uh, like, but then again, David Lee Roth, Diver Down, n- not exactly a gem. But you look at the first couple of albums and you're like, wow. You look at 1984 and it's like, wow. So anyway, uh, so we talked to Noel about all this stuff and um, you will get a, a great uh, Van Halen interview there for you. Uh, but before that, at the top of the show... I talked about the Black Star Riders and, of course, Saxon and Judas Priest going on tour. And then I went on and told you about how wonderful the new Black Star Riders album, um, Heavy Fire, is. And I had actually forgotten that it had come out earlier this year. So between that and L.A. Guns, The Missing Piece, like I said, flip a coin and whatever comes up, that's your album of the year because they're both absolutely exceptional albums. But as I was talking about the Black Star Riders, I pointed out Damon Johnson, who was in Brother Kane, played, spent some time with Alice Cooper. I talked about Robbie Crane, who spent some time, of course, with Rat. I mentioned Scott Gorm, who, as we know, was in Thin Lizzy. And I forgot to mention singer Ricky Warwick. Now, how can you forget Ricky Warwick? One of the greatest rock voices out there today. I mean, whenever he lends his voice to a song, you know it's just going to sound great because he's, he's just got it. So I'm going to take a couple of seconds to give you a little rundown on Ricky Warwick and tell you that you have to go check out his solo albums and his time with the Almighty. But if you look at some of the past albums, uh, 2005, Love Many, Trust Few absolutely glorious album it is a melodic rock fest that somehow it's as if brian adams and john bon jovi had an irish child it it just has this you know pop sensibilities rock sensibilities big hooks and um in 2000 i think six actually there was a re-release of the album and it included two bonus tracks and one of them was an acoustic version. I mean, a super, super acoustic version of Iron Maiden's Running Free. So, just for that, you got to go pick it up. So, Ricky Warwick, Love Many, Trust Few. Then, uh, after that, in 2009, he put out Belfast Confetti, another wonderful, wonderful masterpiece. And then, and then, 2015 or 2016, he put out a double album called when Patsy Cline was crazy and Guy Mitchell sang the blues along with Hearts on Trees. I, I'm telling you. There's like 38 songs on, that, on this compilation. Something like that. And they're all just... They're wonderful. Every single one. So you've got to pick that up. But my favorite of his is an album called Stairwell Troubadour. It is a mostly acoustic album. It does, it does rock out in parts, but... Again, he hits the Iron Maiden catalog and does an acoustic version of Wrathchild that is just... Um, boy, let me, let me go back to my 80s vernacular. It is just to die for. Uh, boy, that's, doesn't that sound horrible? It sounded horrible in the 80s. It sounds horrible now. Um, but no, uh, Wrathchild is... That acoustic version is 
it's it's wild. It's wild. You got to get it. Uh, he also, and I know you're gonna you're gonna roll your eyes at this, but he does an acoustic version of Britney Spears' "Oops, I Did It Again," and uh, I, I really like it. And he does "Dead or Alive's uh, You Spin Me Right Round," and it's 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 a winner. You gotta love it. And uh, what was the other one on there? Oh, um, he does a cover of uh, "I Fought the Law." Which, by the way, Brian Adams also covered. So uh, there, there is this just great rock sensibility stuff. And one of my favorite, favorite songs that he does on that is called Thousand Dollar Car. And it, the lyrics are both compelling and funny at the same time. So there you go. So for Ricky, uh, first of all, I apologize for having uh, forgotten to mention you at the uh, top of the show. And for anybody else out there who doesn't know Ricky Warwick, Go check out his solo albums, Tattoos and Alibis, Love Many, Trust Few, Belfast Confetti, When Patsy Cline Was Crazy, dot, 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 and Stairwell Troubadour. And then, of course, do check out all the Black Star Riders album, particularly The Killer Instinct and the new one, Heavy Fire. And with that, let me move on to Noel E. Monk. And the, fan, the story of Van Halen, running with the devil, a backstage pass of the wild times, loud rock, and the down and dirty truth behind the making of Van Halen. Whew. I, I think I'm going to have to put an oxygen tank next to me when I do these uh, talk-ups, quite frankly. Anyway, without further ado, here is the one, the only, Noel E. Monk. We are speaking with Noel E. Monk, the new book, is Running with the Devil, and it's a story about Van Halen, a backstage pass of the wild times, if you want, behind the making of Van Halen. Noel, a great, great pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and... Actually, you have quite a reputation yourself. Well, thank you. Hopefully good. <laughs> you never it know. It is good, actually. But, uh, it, you know, I'm a huge Van Halen fan, and, and these kind of books with, with the details and stuff really sort of bring you into that. But before we get to the Van Halen story and all that stuff, I sort of want to just set up the table about where did you come from and where did, you know, how did you get involved in the business? Because, you know, I do the interview stuff, but... If you said to me, Mitch, you want to go on the road with, you know, Guns N' Roses next week or Van Halen or interview people, I'd be like, yeah, I want to go on the road. So you started off with Bill Graham, the promoter. Is that sort of, you know, talk? Well, I, I, I'm a little before that. Actually, I was in college and I ran the college theater, which wasn't a great honor. And then I worked at the Playboy Club, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and then I went to work for Bill Graham, who was my mentor for years. Yeah, so uh, talk to me about Bill Graham, because obviously he's a promoter that worked with all those bands. You know, you're looking at your Santanas and your Joan Baez and your Jefferson Starship and Doobie Brothers, and it goes on and on and on. Um, what exactly did you do for him, and what did you learn from him because he really is he's one of those guys that changed uh, the concert experience if that's fair to say oh absolutely i mean before bill i would take a few acts on the road and uh, it was almost amateurish and bill took over the film maurice which was an old yiddish theater 
on 2nd Avenue and, and 6th Street. And a lot of us came from Carnegie Tech. But my first job was working a stage, sweeping the stage, pouring Southern Comfort for Janis Joplin. Um, my friends were like the Grateful Dead and, and the airplane. And it was funny when you said the Starship. There was no Starship back then. Right, Jefferson um, Airplane. Yeah, and... You know, working with Jimi Hendrix, then I started um, doing sound, and I really enjoyed mixing sound. And um, at that point, uh, I started stage managing for Bill, and I spent about two years as his stage manager. And he was a tough guy to work with, but he was very fair and um, he was just a good friend to me. I would say one of my best friends in the business. And yeah. I mean, we all knew that he had, he had run through Germany when he was, I think six or seven and escaped. And he came and um, made enough money to bring his whole family over from Germany. And he was he was quite a man. I I really miss Bill. Yeah, and and it's it's unfortunate the way he passed. Uh, and then just before we move on, the the Fillmore obviously had a chance to work in there. That building, there are just some buildings: CBGB, Fillmore, Madison Square Garden, the Forum in L.A. They're, they're just these exceptionally unique and, and venerable places. Uh, what was it like being in the Fillmore? And and what was it that was so special about it that, that it just became not just a concert venue, it became a cultural sort of experience? Well, it was wholly different from what followed. We did two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday. And one show would be B.B. King, The Who, and The Airplane. And we do four shows over a weekend. And it wasn't, um, how can I say it? it was, everyone didn't take themselves so seriously. And they didn't, I guess, superstardom wasn't in full fledge. It was like, Hey, we're here. Let's make some music and let's do a good job. Or uh, Bill might take our head off. <laughs> um, but he ran legitimate rock and roll theater, and um, he was the first one to really do it. And people followed after him, but he followed nobody. Yeah, he he, he was he was a, an innovator for sure. Um, and then just before I get to to Van Halen, you have written obviously another book called Twelve Days on the Road: The Sex Pistols and America." You were part of that scene, part of of being with the band back in I guess it was seventy eight. Um, talk to me about that experience because here is this punk band with all kinds of. You know, spit and vin you know, piss and vinegar, and they're coming over to the states. 
how did you get uh, connected to them? I worked for record companies, and I would take their new acts. I was working with A&R, Artist Development, and I would take them on the road. And they normally would last four, five, maybe six weeks until their sales showed that they couldn't afford them out there anymore. And um, so at that point, um, they couldn't find anyone that wanted to take the pistols out. Well, I did. I mean, I loved the challenge. And uh, at that point, um, it was a great tour. It was probably one of the most exciting tours I'd been on. And when I wrote the book, um, actually, it was more of a niche band. Uh, With the book I wrote this time, it's got a huge following, but the Pistols didn't. But Sid and I were very close friends. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories that go around, but from what I know about Sid, he did not kill Nancy. And I can give you specific reasons why not. Um, but, I mean, we roomed together, and I took care of that band, and uh, we made it through America. Uh, I'll give you one reason that Sid didn't do it. If uh, you'd ever been around a junkie, right? and if he or she shoots up, have you ever seen them angry? No, they usually pass point? out. They usually pass out, or they're so so oh, laid back. Right, and that's when they said he killed her. Okay, doesn't fit, does it? No. And he was staying at the Chelsea, and I, I had been in and out of there a lot of, when I was doing Tom Waits, he was staying at the Chelsea, and there were no doors locked, and Nancy, frankly, owed a lot of people a lot of money, and uh, if anyone killed her, it was someone walking through the halls who she owed money to. So I always resented that that rush to judgment. Sid was my friend. Yeah. What more can I say? No, and and um, just before, and I don't want to, you know, move on and be disrespectful to to what happened, but um, that last show at Winterland, that infamous <laughs> last show. Yes. Did you see that coming? Was that sort of, you know, theater? Or was that sincere or was it just, you know, we're exhausted of this tour and we're going to do something that's spectacular and make a... I mean, how much of it is is sort of Barnum and Bailey and how much was it, wow, this guy's just crazy? It it was all real. You know, I I never saw any of it as made up. Um, Johnny was, I felt, a really wonderful performer. And he could mesmerize an audience. Sid could cut himself open with a beer bottle and mesmerize an audience. Um, But in Winterland, if you look at the show, and Warner Brothers did a a filming of it, 
the ironic part of it is nobody is looking at each other. Uh, it was the end. Um, and we did what we had to do. We got through the tour. But that was a very real tour. Um, at least I felt it was. And uh, then it, it they just, disappeared. It just always struck me that this band, the Sex Pistols, became so iconic to a subculture, so iconic in the music business when people think, oh, never mind the bullets. Oh, the... And yet when you look at what they did on paper, they did a couple of shows, they did, a, they did an album. I mean, there are bands that have done a lot more that we never talk about, and yet they became such a big thing. And it's, it's just amazing that they became sort of mythical, um, you know, given what they did. Uh, they broke ground. Um God save the queen. She ain't no human being. Nobody would say that in England. Uh, here it was like a big deal. But in England, it was a big deal. And when they came over, we knew that um, they caused riots in England. But Americans could, frankly, care less. They were well-fed happy and uh, it was a wholly different uh, time frame yeah and especially you know with with the time in the 70s where the americans had just sort of come out of vietnam war and stuff and you had been sort of fed the war on tv anything that was sort of um i don't want to say obnoxious but you know all that stuff you you had seen it in real life sort of thing you know dan rather or or, or walter cronkite was bringing you that kind of so it, it just couldn't impress. It was like, yeah, okay, great, great. You don't like the Queen, yeah. So what, you know? Um, but there you go, uh, Van Halen. Let, let us move on to Running with the Devil. I remember them well. Yes. Now, you know, you read through the book and you hear the stories. You know, we've all read stuff in Rolling Stone and in Billboard and in this website and that. And there always seems to have been this incredible dysfunction, this incredible drug use, this incredible alcohol, and this everything everything points to this band not succeeding, and yet they have. And people still love them, and I love them. And, and, and you were there, though. Talk to me about some of that dysfunction. Are you surprised that they were able to succeed given everything, the personalities I and mean, talk to me about all that, that, that stuff that was going on. All that stuff was real rock and roll. Um, unfortunately it was very typical rock and roll. The one thing I can say about Van Halen is no matter how, or what they did before a show, during a show, after a show, they never messed up on stage. They were totally professional. Uh, they wanted desperately to succeed. Uh, it didn't happen. My feeling was they had another four years in them, another five years. But they really took it to uh, the drug use, the animosity, everything just dragged them down. 
But they were probably one of the greatest live bands I had ever seen. And I had worked with the Stones and, and the Who and the Airplane. And, um, but David was one of the best front men. And he didn't need a great voice. His gravelly, rough voice was rock and roll. He wasn't singing opera. And Eddie was an absolute brilliant guitar player. Um, unlike his brother, who I really felt was very jealous of Edward. I mean, how would you like to have your younger brother get the adulation that Edward got? And you're a good drummer, you know, and because you were in Van Halen, he automatically became a great drummer, but he was suitable. Um, Michael was a, a good bass player and a great voice, but without Edward and David, there was no Van Halen. I dare say I had never seen anyone jump off the drum riser, do a full split, and land. Um, it it was never done. It couldn't be done. And all the would-it-be's, could-it-be's, I am, they didn't follow in Van Halen's footsteps. They sold out because of the name. And, um, you know, the dysfunctional part, right. well, killed the band. Right. Um, but, the only bad show I ever saw them do was the US Festival. And I guess if you pay us a million and a half, you're right. going to get a bad show. <laughs> but and, and yet that's the, like the only one that's on videotape. Um, speaking of the dysfunction, you know, as a fan, you, you know, we, we all wanted that reunion tour to happen in 2007, 2008. And they did. They brought David back, but they did it without Michael Anthony. Um, talk to me a little bit about the story of Michael Anthony, because he's always sort of seemed to be the, the you know, the square and the round peg. He's always sort of been the one that they, they've picked on. And yet, if you ask fans, they go, well, without his backing vocals, it's not Van Halen. Without that, you know, Jack Daniels bass, it's... Uh, Michael was was a wonderful guy. Straight up. He was honest, fair, never gave me a problem, but it was like Lord of the Flies. You had to have someone to pick on. And as the years went by, Al got, he was such a drunk, but he was a mean drunk. Right. And uh, they would pick on Michael and why he put up with it, I have no answer. Uh, why they cut him out of the royalties in the middle of 84, after the record was, was done, why he allowed that to happen, I don't know. I couldn't stop him because he would have had to come to me and say, no, what do I do? And then I could have done something. But I represented all four guys. And uh, 
I was said, Michael, take the night off, tear the paper up, throw it in your face. But he never came to me. And, um, you know, it was a more than an unfortunate situation. It was actually very horrific. I thought it was disgusting. It really is. And, and you would sort of think that at this point they would bring him back and do a full reunion. But, you know, sort of the word on the street now is that Van Halen is done. There will be no 2018. There will be no 2000. There might be. We're hoping. But they're old men. If David jumps off the drum riser, we put him in the hospital. These are not 20-year-olds. Right. I don't know what they expect of them. It's a nostalgia band. And it's got nothing to do with Van Halen. And it's got to do with, oh, I feel good. I remember 40 years ago when they were brilliant. They're not brilliant now. Certainly Edward's a brilliant guitar player. You know, but David is not a brilliant front man anymore. I mean, they're in their 60s. What do they expect? Yeah. You know, I I assume they're doing it for the money and for the adulation because they're multimillionaires. Uh, they don't need the money, but, you know, David always wanted to be a front man. And it's kind of pathetic yeah. at best. Um, I mean... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, what compels you to write a book like this? The, the, you know, the band has been exceptionally secretive. You know, there are some bands you sort of know the whole history, but if you look at a Bon Jovi or at a Van Halen, it's always been kept in-house. When you sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write this book, was there any trepidation of, you know, I'm ruining a secret, I'm, 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 I'm breaking the silence, or, hey, I'm going to get sued over this. Um, just talk to me about sort of the motivation to say, okay, it's time to tell at least a side of the story, and I'm going to tell my side of the story. Well, it's not really my side. It was what I saw happen. Um, I didn't really have a side, per se. It was or a perspective. what I really worried about was that there are so many writers out there who have never seen 78 to 85, who never met the band, but are writing about them as if they knew them. And it's a lot of crap what they write. And now with the internet, uh, you know, we put out that David got paternity insurance, and you can look it up. Google it, and they'll still talk about it. And when I couldn't get him insurance, I said, David, it'll make a good story. But there is so much false um, material that's out there. And unless you were there, you should really shut up. Because you don't know what happened. And I had no axe to grind, and I had been writing stories since I wrote my first book. 
and uh, I've got a very good memory, and I have thousands of pages, all my files, my legal files. So I could tell it um, as it happened. And there was nothing to be sued about. It was all reality. No one's approached me and said, well, that wasn't true. You know, it was all true. But I really resent the this. what's going to happen now is a bunch of writers are going to make up stories and make up a, a, another history. And I wanted to get the reality out. And because there's one book which makes me out to be a New York City policeman. I mean, things that didn't happen and you cannot get them off the web. I'm always going to be that because some fool of a writer decided to put that in. And since the internet has taken over, nothing gets challenged. So I felt, let's bring the curtain back. Let's show what went on. Not many people know because we didn't want them to know. That would have not, we wouldn't have looked quite as good. Right. Um, let me talk about some of the early days. You, you know, you look at the stories of the M&Ms in the contract, and you look at the Ronnie Montrose, and you look at, you know, uh, the band, and like most opening bands, get not only disrespected, but they get sort of abused, and so you have to come up with things like that M&M contract to say, hey, promoter, pay attention to what we're doing. Um, but, but talk to me about those early days and, and having to sort of prove yourself and validate yourself and, and, and have sort of a show of force with other management and other opening acts and, or, sorry, headliners and say, hey, you're not going to treat us this way. And it, well, you got to remember, I've been on the road for over 20 years. You didn't mess with me or my band. And if you did, you got a healthy dose of in your face. Um, no one was going to not give us our sound check. I had been out there for too long to take it from anybody. I remember we opened one show for, for Ted Nugent. Now he loved us, and I heard him say as he was walking off, I'll never let those guys open for me again. Because we blew everybody off the stage. So it was a matter of survival for the other acts. Not many opening acts sold the records we sold. Had an Edward Van Halen. Had a David Lee Roth. I really believe that this band could have lasted, never got to its height, never got to where they should have been. They imploded two or three years before. Um, and they had a ways to go to become what I thought they could become. And uh, I felt it was time to talk about the real Van Halen well, before me... all the the bullshit would come out from these writers who never saw a show. Right. 
Well, let me ask you about that because you just say they never got as big as they should have been or where they... But if you look back, at least from my perspective, in 1984, you could not leave the house without hearing Jump. You could not leave the house without hearing Panama. At that time, at least from my... And what was I at that time? You know, 16 years old. It appeared as though they ruled the world. Um... Did you not have that perspective that in 1984 and, and, you know, 83, 84, this was the biggest band in the world? No, absolutely not. I knew them too well. I knew what they could really do. Edward, I expected to reinvent himself and, and go on to bigger and better things. But they happened to be bigger and better drugs. Uh, I mean, Edward was a brilliant guitar player, but not the brightest tool in the in the in the shop. Um, and Al had gotten to be a really a drunk. David was totally egoed out, and Michael was Michael. He was a sweet guy who let people push him around. Uh, it was all headed for disaster, but there was a lot that they hadn't done. Every year we would do bigger and better things, but it wasn't to be. Um, and I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I have a tendency to cut off, but, but let's look at, you know, your opinion of Eddie Van Halen, if you can, these days. Because it, it strikes me as though Van Halen in 2017 should have been, we're, we're in September now, they should have been coming off a massive summer tour. They should be planning the next one. They should be making albums. But if you go back to 1998, from 98 to now, we're looking almost 20 years, one album, very little touring. Um... Why do you think that, that Alex and, and, and Eddie have essentially decided to hibernate and just not get out there and work it like the Kisses of the world or the Aerosmiths of the world, who really are on tour every year and at least are doing something every year? Why do you think the band at this point has sort of, and really the last 20 years, have just sort of fallen in on themselves and just not become a touring, recording entity. You think maybe they burn themselves out? Perhaps. You think maybe everything that they did was so over the top that you couldn't live through it, that the creativity never really matured. The Stones are a perfect example. They always come out with a new. You know, Van Halen came out with being a vitriolic, angry bunch of multi-millionaires. Um, you know, and people really knew nothing about them. Uh, and we kept it that way. Uh, you know, this is not a band that even 30 years ago could duplicate what they did in 78. They were history by, by 88. 
You know, I mean, Edward, no hip, half a tongue, cannot slide on the ground. David's lost his hair, lost whatever he had of his voice. Uh, he's he's a, a caricature of himself. He's embarrassing. They all embarrass me because of what I knew that they were and that, you know, people still think that there's more to come when there was nothing to come after, after the, the eighties, you know, when you say they didn't come out with a new record, they didn't have one. You know, they had nothing left in that in that gun. All the bullets were expended. And then you got other has-beens. You got a Hagar and a Van Sharon and a Van Dis. You know, these guys were just wanted to, it to be in their repertoire that they were in Van Halen. They were not of the ilk of Van Halen, of the brilliance of Van Halen. You know, in, in, in 82, this was a brilliant band. In 88, I don't think so. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, and, and I'm going to go with the, with the fan card again here, but you mentioned that 82, they were brilliant. I would, I would agree with you certainly on stage that they were brilliant, but I think when they got to, to Diver Down, in terms of an album, it appeared as though ideas were running dry because we're back to all of a sudden doing all kinds of cover songs. I mean, Women and Children First, all originals, were ready to go, you know, fair warning. And then Diver Down, they seem to be back to, oh, well, what, what can we cover? Um, talk to me a little bit about the covers and originals. The band, you know, in the first couple albums had covers, Diver Down... Why were they so, and maybe using it as a crutch is not, but why were they so uh, compelled to make covers and not just say, hey, these are our songs, this is what we have to offer? And was there a lot of record company pressure saying, you need a song that people recognize so that we can play it on radio? After 78, the record company didn't say a word. They, they took their record sales and very happy. As far as, you know, they had three weeks to make an album before the next tour. Uh, it was impossible to come off the tour and take a break and make a new album. That's why, actually, in 82, I said, guys, you've got to take a year off. You're getting stale. It's not happening. They took a year off, and they came up with 84. Um, I mean, that album is equivalent to their first album, which is probably the best first album ever put out. You name me one bad cut on that album. On the, on the, uh, on, there on, isn't any. On the on first Van Halen? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. The first, you know, no, Running With The Devil, Ain't Talking About Love. No, there, there's... There's nothing. There's not nothing bad. Agreed. And they got back to it in '84, but they were so burned up 
and they were so egoed out and just plain mean. I mean, they went from being a nice bunch of guys to being mean enough to take a plate and smash it on Michael's plate and kick out his royalties after the record came out. I mean, these guys, I'd been with a lot of acts, and uh, I'd never seen a band go from being nice, brilliant, wonderful, to what they were in 84, and it was pretty disgusting. And they also seem to point some of that hate towards you. I mean, you you write in the book a story of um, your wife was in the hospital, and they send flowers, and it's not, here's a note from Eddie, and here's a note from Michael, and here's a note from Dave. It's, you know, the Van Halen office wishes you whatever. Oh, and yeah, you're fired. (laughs) Yeah, that that, kind of says it all, doesn't it? Well, it does say it all. I mean, you know... to get a note from the Van Halen office rather than the four guys that you've been in the trenches with, sweating it through, fighting for them, having their back, doing all this stuff. you know They had no gratitude. Right. There was no gratitude to any of them. They all thanked, they looked in the mirror and they said, thank you. Um, Do you think that... That's that, who they thanked. Do you think that that was... Um, drug-fueled, or do you think that that's ego-fueled, where, like, we don't need Noel, we don't need this guy, I'm Eddie Van Halen, I'm David Lee Roth, I'm king of the world, you know, F them all, or is it a combination of both, or is it just just plain old mean-spirited? I would say there's a combination. Um, you know, all of it coming together. We were on top of the world in America, but we had no presence overseas. Um, yeah, you, you know, know and the, that, the most fun tour we ever did, frankly, to me, was South America. It was a wonderful tour. It was a fun tour. Um, you know, they didn't have their their following licking up after them. Um, they lost their perspective. They lost their humanity, and they became the worst of the worst, coming from the best of the best. And so David buried them. You know, when he came out with his EP, there was no touring in 85. It was David's album. And... So we couldn't have an 85. David knew that. And he decided it was time that Van Halen became David. Because he was bigger than they were. Which didn't quite prove to be true. No. And he came out with four schlock cuts. In which I sold a million of. Which embarrassed the heck out of me. But David was... was the kicker that killed the band. He made it impossible for them to have another, another album. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I also found, cause you, you were the tour manager before the manager 
The band On The Road, incredible reputation. You know, going to see a Van Halen show, whether it was 79 or 80 or 82, everybody still, you know, my brother went to see shows back in the day because he's a little older than me, and he still speaks about them. Why was there no thought given to, instead of throwing them in the studio and coming down with Diver Down with 87 cover tunes, why not throw together a live album? Kiss did it with a live. They did it with a live too. Aerosmith live. Uh, well, uh, before you say Kiss did it, right? A lot of what Kiss did was done in the studio and overlaid. True. Um, also, I've been involved with a lot of live albums, and they're always terrible because. Can you imagine Edward and, and David trying to stay on mic, <laughs> uh, microphone, and not but, sound horrible? But even so, I mean, why, why not fake not, it? Why not huh? fake a live? Why not fake a live album and just say, "Okay, because folk. it's a fake." Okay, you don't do that. That's called chicanery. Right. You know, either you can do it or you can't. Right. Kiss having faked a lot of it and certainly didn't enhance their reputation. You know it. I know it. Most people know they faked it. We never faked anything, good, bad, or indifferent. We were who we were, and uh, that was unfortunate to some extent. And the other thing that I find unfortunate is because unlike KISS and unlike some of the other bands, they have an entire sort of videography or filmography of, of shows from every... Van Halen, you never really brought out cameras and, 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 and film stuff. Why was there a resist? Now, of course, there was no DVD market and blah, 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 no home video market in those early days, but why not just for posterity capture more of those performances there, there there really is not a lot of pro shot anything van halen from back in that day well we weren't making up a legend we were living it right it's a big difference in oh let's be a legend and make up some some videos of ourselves we are a legend we are living our legend um there was no angst about showing who we were. Do you Again, have... that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to see who we really were. Is, was there, is there now in 2017, looking back, some regret that you don't have a great, you know, 10 shows from 1981 lying around that you could just sort of say, hey, folks, this, this is what this band was. I mean, this is the real deal. Uh... I could care less. Okay, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me, and the guys don't seem to give a rat's ass either, so I don't think that was ever a question. Um, you've mentioned in other interviews, and you've mentioned before, that Dave and Eddie are Van Halen, and that almost cast... Michael and, and Alex, but you certainly have given no credence to Sammy Hager's version of, of Van Halen. Who? Exactly. And yet, you know... Alex... I mean, we're talking about someone who 
could not jump off a drum riser. Um, we're talking about uh, Van Sharon. Now we're talking about embarrassing. Um, if you think Van Hagar has anything to do with Van Halen, you're delusional. The, and you think that, that that Hagar is a front man like David? As I a front man, with you, I never saw a front man jump off the drum riser. I've never seen a guy uh, take an audience and mold it and move them. You know, I mean, he's not the most beautiful thing in the world, and he did a couple albums great. So did Sharon. Would you call him Van Halen? I don't think so. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call Gary Sharon Van Halen, but I would give him a lot more credit than he he has gotten because the album they made with him was just musically. Mis- with, with who? I'm sorry. With, with Gary Sharon, that Van Halen three album was completely it sold, an old. Utter- it didn't sell gold. Yeah, it, it was, was a terrible album. Totally misguided musically, but the performances he did live um, are not David Lee Roth, then, and they weren't. Sammy Hagar, but they were. I'm sorry, I, I never saw him. I don't know. You don't know. I can't make a judgment. After '85, there was no Van Halen. When when David left and walked out, um, had you still been manager and and moving forward for '86 and '87, '88? What would have been your recommendation would it have been like hey let's take some time off and let's get dave back and give him his two years to go do his eat him and smile ego thing or would you have said okay we need to get a new singer and we need to move this ship forward with whoever this new guy is why you you don't replace uh the beatles and mccartney you don't do it what, are you going to bring in someone to replace McCartney? Um, again, people are dreaming. You know, Van Halen was what it was for seven years. After that, it went away. And if you can't, if you can't get that through your head or you don't want to, you can call anyone the lead singer. You can put anyone in as a new guitar player. Uh, it's just a load of crap. Yeah. And it's not realistic, you know. Sure, they wanted it, but it wasn't there. You know, you're going to take Eddie away and call it Van Halen. No. You're going to take Eddie and Dave away and call it Van Halen. There, there, I don't think so. And that there is an important distinction there. To me, you're right. David Lee Roth is an absolute star frontman, but I would say that Sammy Hager is a probably a better singer, but not a, but not. Who the, cares? Right. They're not doing opera. True. You know, David was a rock and roll singer. You know, and if, if Hagar was. Not a beautiful voice and whatever. 
it was Van Hagar, another band, another time. You know, the guy was not a David Lee Roth. I liked David's voice better as a rock and roll singer. You know, we're not talking about a pretty voice. We're talking about rock and roll. And uh, if you want to say, well, he had a better voice, a lot of people had better voices than David, but they didn't have a better stage presence. They couldn't, they, they weren't as physically in as good shape. They couldn't do what David did. You know, they would die trying, but they didn't even try. You know, I think it's kind of unfortunate that, that people, want so bad to have Van Halen back that they'll put anyone in there. But, I mean, well, who should be Edward? You know, and I don't know, who should be Edward? Well, the easy answer is that there is no other Edward. I mean, Eddie Van Halen is a star upon himself. I mean, there's, there's no, uh, there's no replacing Eddie Van Halen. Um, and there's no replacing David for what he was. True. You know, I saw hundreds of shows and this man could captivate an audience like nobody I'd ever seen except maybe Jagger and even Mick, when I worked for him, couldn't, take an audience and do what he could do. So you think of Sharon good? I mean, this is very delusional thinking. This is wishful thinking that uh, we'll take anything and call it Van Halen. It's pathetic. Well, you know, Kiss does it, but um, before we leave here, because I know you have another interview soon, I want to ask you about... Sort no, of... actually, I cancel it because I didn't want to interrupt yours. Ah, well, then I have a couple more uh, questions. Um, sort of the fifth Beatle, if you want, the fifth Van Halen, Ted Templeman. Um, talk to me about Ted coming in, and, you know, when you were managing the band, did you ever say to them, hey, let's consider a different producer to try to have a different sound, or a diff- or was it like, no, this guy is essential to what you do. There is not a chance on God's green earth that you can replace him. Um, just talk to me about the band's relationship with, with Ted Templeman and your relation with Ted Templeman and how important he actually... Because some will, some might argue that as much as Dave's frontman stuff and Eddie's guitar solo, that production is as much Van Halen as the band was. You know... um, that wasn't my job. You know, I didn't get in the studio. I was a sound man, but I was, I mixed live sound. I wasn't a studio engineer. Um, the band, I didn't sing, dance, or play a musical instrument. I cut deals. I made sure that Eddie got a fair break when he had a paternity suit. Uh, I made sure their lives were comfortable, but I wasn't musically really a part of the band, except when it came to, hey, let's take a break. 
or yeah, we should go overseas. Uh, with all this due respect, that was not my 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 job. But you must have been if cutting the deal. You must have been cutting the deal to get the producer. I mean, you obviously must have, must have paid him and must have said, "Here's what you're going to get to do this next album." And at no not point, really, no. Okay, um, but okay, that wasn't my job either. Okay, they picked their producer. I didn't. Looking at then from a fan perspective, though, would you have counseled them differently and say, "Hey, maybe you should try somebody different just to see if they'll get you a different sound," or you just go, no, these guys are happy with Ted. He's the guy. Who was I to say that? They were very, uh, they did a good job making albums. We only had problems with one album. And Payola took care of that. But um, the music was up to Edward and David. It really was not Promotion was my job, making sure that album got out there and got promoted. And when it wasn't selling, I made it promoted. <laughs> uh, I mean, Murray Decay would have been proud of me. Um, you know, but, you know, managers who think they should be in the studio, uh, usually it's a mistake. I certainly didn't think I should be in the studio or directing their musical musical content. They did pretty well on their own. Yeah, they re- they really did. Now you did mention Payola, so so that that brings us to the story of Fair Warning. Album comes out, it's lukewarm reception, and the Payola machine goes into into full effect. Uh, explain to me, sort of, what was that? about and how did it work and you know a lot of people talk about billboard you know being a top 10 on billboard there is sort of the suggestion out there that you bought a number one single and you buy a top 10 spot um i didn't and i i think you you mistook what i wrote in my book oh no 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 one yeah billboard if anything was owned by the record company be very simply, who paid for all that, that advertising space? The record company. How do you think Billboard existed? You think these small acts put out these full-page ads? I don't think so. I think the record companies owned these newspapers. And as far as um, the payola... Well, my view was we had to be a platinum band. If we weren't a platinum band, we were on our way down. So when Carl Scott called me and said, listen, Noel, your band's not going to be a platinum band this year. I said, that can't be. I said, no, the figures say it is. I said, I went and took a meeting with him. He said, well, why don't you go down and talk to Russ Byrett and make it happen? So I did. I spoke to the band, and I guesstimated a couple hundred thousand would, would get enough 
radio stations to make us go platinum. And I was right on. My music's spot on when it comes to figures. We did a million forty-eight thousand by the time I got done and off the phone. And we, it only cost us a dollar an album. And so we went from eight hundred thousand to a million forty-eight. This is the way the business was, and maybe still is. Uh, and and just to, in terms of the my my reference to Billboard in in my own head, I was thinking more of a story of Whitney Houston didn't want to lose the number one spot to Motley Crue, and so uh, they went and sort of bought the number one spot. That was my 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 frame of reference. It wasn't uh, necessarily misinterpreting um, what was in the book, but uh, a lot of no no, I wasn't saying misinterpreting. Right. I was saying you kind of confusing the two right 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 no okay um, true you know between the payola and owning the chart positions uh that's what i meant confusing the two yeah because i mean because uh, they were both part of the industry i mean uh, who do you think um was Moe's boss um, right. back in before he was with Warner Brothers. That's Reprise right. Records. Right. And who did he work for? Sinatra. Now, with all due respect, I don't want my legs broken, so I shut up at that point. Uh, but this industry um, is pretty notoriously run by by certain folks yeah there's 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 certainly a lot of smoke and mirrors going on in, in the uh record industry um and here I'll, we'll finish on these two stories the um as a fan myself the tour when you say van halen toured with black sabbath um you know we we think we we make up this imaginary tale of how wonderful but but talk to me about sabbath and van halen was it a glorious tour? Was it sort of like this match made in heaven? Was it a complete disaster? Just bring me back to that time and what it was like to see, you know, Eddie, Eddie Van Halen followed by Tony Iommi. It, it must have been just a powerhouse. It was a lot of fun. Right. I mean, unfortunately, you know, they'd been out there for 10 years and... They were pretty well burned, and we blew them off the stage. Um, but the bands got along famously. I mean, they partied like crazy. There were no two bands that got along better that I had worked with. Um, you know, Ted Nugent, of course, couldn't even hold a candle to Van Halen. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, Black Sabbath was barely holding that candle. Um, but the bands, you know, there's a little animosity there, but that happens. Yep, it really does. Um, and then I'll, I'll finish on the story of Eddie Van Halen and his, um, you know, his drug mule that was there, the... He, he had a guy out on the road that would provide him with this this cocaine, and 
And on one hand, it annoyed you greatly because he had a guy out there supplying him with cocaine. But on the other hand, you were like, well, this works because at least he's not, you know, at two in the morning on some street corner trying to get some. Uh, just talk to me about that, that part of the business, that part of the touring where you sometimes just have to close your eyes for sort of the greater good. Because if Eddie gets arrested in, you know, Dubuque, well, then the guy who's the bus driver doesn't get paid if the tour goes. You know, there's, there's all of this extra stuff. Talk, just tell me a little bit about that story and, and that sort of ugh, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. Well, not damned if you don't. Um, in my tenure with Van Halen, did we ever get arrested not for anything, not really? That not that I'm aware of, though there is a... a the, uh, but... When David was on his own, did he get arrested in Central Park for buying a a bag of weed? Yep, absolutely. He didn't have my savvy and my protection. Um, I knew how to keep them safe. And that was a good part of my job. And this pimp who was bringing him Peruvian flake. Well, I despised him, but, you know, I'm out there chasing bootleggers, and I would have loved to have beat the crap out of him. But then, like you said, who would replace him? Some street junkie? So I let him have his his high-class pimp. Um... And I let the guy exist. And it was that simple. Uh, If I wanted him gone off that tour, he'd be gone, but then I would be stupid. Right. And And, and David would get a ticket for buying weed. I didn't want that. And and I think that's what I think some fans lose sometimes. It's like, oh, well, Noel's an enabler, Noel. But at the same time, if Eddie gets arrested, like I said, on, on a street corner in Dubuque and the tour gets canceled, now the lighting guy doesn't get paid and his family doesn't have money and, and, the, and the bus drivers don't get paid. and they, there's a, It's not just Eddie and Noel. It's an entire crew of 100 people that all of a sudden... 140 a, people. Right. And when they broke that band up, they put all those people out of work. They could care less about anybody but themselves by that point. Now it's a joke. You know. Um, and that's why and that's why by the way I would say I would say you're not an enabler. You you were thinking of sort of the bigger picture and unfortunately you had to paint with a with a sort of strange canvas, but you got to think of all those 140 people that just wouldn't have any money if suddenly one of the band members is thrown in jail. And so, um, you know, Noel, an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. And um, I didn't mean to be a little hard on you because basically... um, you know, I have my point of view, and right or wrong, uh, we all have our points of view. Yep. And the one thing that I can say is, I was there. 
I saw everything. And the band didn't really know what happened. No individual had the picture I had. Um, They really, you know, all all your writers are going to come out with all these great stories. And it's going to be a pile of junk. Um, And that's what I wanted to not happen. Although, of course, will happen because they want to make their money and they want to become Van Halen experts, even though they never saw the show when they were in their brilliance. Um, But I appreciated your having me on. If it wasn't for guys like you, I think I would sell about maybe 12 books, maybe 11. Um, I'll make sure but, we get that to 13 and 14. <laughs> uh, if you could push it for me, I'll, I'll, I'll get you all the bubble gum you want. Yeah, no, but, uh, you know, I, I, just on a, on a personal note, I, I'm not a great avid reader. I, I, I generally hate reading these kind of books and I but this one was really compelling you you just you, you look at the first page and you go oh yeah okay and it really sucked me in it, it, it was really a well told story and a well written uh book and 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 so I thank you for that because it's this band has been so mysterious for so long and this sort of just peels back one of those layers and gives you a little peek inside and, and it's just it's just so appreciated so well done so you know well i just have to say one thing uh i'm a decent writer but joe Layden, who was my co-writer is a brilliant writer he wrote 30 books and uh he made my good writing into brilliant writing. Um, We worked together incredibly well. Uh, We spent over a year and a quarter um, just doing the writing on the book. Um, Harper Collins, I I had um, Matt Harper, who wasn't a Harper Collins, um, but I had a very good team. I had my wife and my daughter, because my wife was on the 84 tour. And my daughter had heard every story I ever wrote. She's a great editor. And I had a great editor in Matt Harper, you know. So, you know, then there are people like you who, you're more than a fan. You're an aficionado of rock. Yep. And uh, you have a reputation that goes back a long way. And I was extremely pleased that you had me on your show. Yeah. So the kudos go to you. Uh, you asked wonderful questions. You put up with my junk. Um you didn't tell me to shut up and, and listen to you. I mean, you were, you were you were a lot of fun to work with, sir. Thank you, and and uh, I appreciate it. I I will say one thing that, in terms of my philosophy of interviewing, is that folks are tuning in to listen to the guest, the rock star. They want to hear Eddie talk. They want to hear Noel talk. They want to hear Gene's, 
And so I, I, as much as possible, try to give a lot of room because they they don't tune in to listen to my voice. They tune in to hear that rock star and that guy tell that story. And so I think that's important. And I've heard a lot of interviews where people step all over and they want to sort of say, hey, listen to me. And it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Let the guests talk. And, <laughs> and um, right. I mean, you know, you know, that's what happens. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. And you got to understand, I did one interview in all my years with Van Halen. It wasn't about me. It was about the band. You know, it, it, it was about guys like you who could write about the band. Um, you know, and, and you're the kind of guy that, that made us. You were a fan who was incredibly perceptive and knowledgeable. How much more could I ask for? I don't know. How much more could the real fans ask for? They want you. Yeah. And not many reviewers or interviewers are nearly as good as you. Well, well, thank you for, for that. And, um, and, and I will pay back the compliment in terms of books. I have read a lot of these books you know, for interviews and for entertainment, and a lot of them fall flat. And this one does not fall flat. If you are a fan of Van Halen, it is a must-buy. And if you're not, but you're a rock fan and you like a well-told story that really gives you some insight, this is the book for you, Running with the Devil by Noel E. Monk. And so that is, is essential that I get that message out there. Thank you. And thank you. And Noel, absolutely, anytime if you, you need to do a part two or you want to say anything else, you know where to find me and how to find me, and I'd be, it would be my great pleasure. I appreciate that. And you have a wonderful weekend. Yes. Um, and uh, like I said, it was, it was a real pleasure being interviewed by you. Absolutely, and it was so a great pleasure. again, thank you, and, and you have a good evening. You too. Thank you, Noel. Merci. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a true car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Next, TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car that you are looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they are connected with a True Car Certified Dealer. True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, 
visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now on Podcast One Sports, it's a family affair on Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast. We're going to attack this day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Hear incredible stories on Sound of Success, the Dick Enberg podcast. Oh my. And guess who's talking America's favorite basketball team. Hey, it's Jay Moore and it is time for America's Lakers podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, the new Podcast One app. And where else, Jay? PodcastOne.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to Noel E. Mung for those opinions and great, great stories about Van Halen. Uh, you got to love that band. And I just, just wish they would do more. But everything I've heard is that they are no more and there will be no more. And uh, let's just hope that that information is absolutely wrong. I, I want it to be wrong. I want there to be a 2018 tour, and I want it to be a 2019 tour, and I want there to be an album and an extravaganza with Dave, Gary, and Sammy, all of them, uh, out there rocking it together as a massive Van Halen fest. But we'll see. As of 2017, the future looks kind of bleak, sadly. Uh, glum, for, for, for the lack of a better word. Anyway. I will uh, keep this talk up short. We're going to finish off with guitarist Chris Broderick of the band Act of Defiance. They have a new album out called Old Scars, New Wounds. Um, Only got about 15 minutes in with Chris. The uh, cell phone connection uh, dropped off um, and we were uh, cut short. But you got 15 minutes of great content, so enjoy it. Uh, and with that, uh, please head over to Twitter. Check me out, at Mitch LaFon. Instagram is at Mitch underscore LaFon. And, of course, uh, head over to Facebook and check out Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon there. I do have a personal page uh, on Facebook, Mitch LaFon. It is completely and utterly... Um, What's the word? I don't want to say. Sold out. Let's call it sold out, like a, like a concert. It's sold out. I have reached uh, 5,000 uh, friends on there, but you can certainly follow, I believe. I think after you 5,000 friends, you can just be a follower. So please join uh, and enjoy my uh, discussions of stuff on this day and, and different bands and opinions. Um, I think it's great fun, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so here, without further ado from the band Act of Defiance. Here is guitarist Chris Broderick. We are speaking with Act of Defiance guitarist Chris Broderick. And um, Chris, pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let's talk about the band and the new album, of course, uh, Old Scars and New Wounds. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about going in making a second album, because we always hear about the sophomore jinx and everything like that. Uh, was there any attention paid to that in terms of, of the writing and how you wanted to sort of move forward with the band? Uh, no, not at all. I think uh, the, the, the big thing that we were working on this time was just bringing you know, more of everybody into the fold. Sean and I trying to scramble to write, get the band put together and get everything organized and, and get the product out as, as soon as possible. But with Old Scar's New Wounds, this time, you know, we'd been touring for the past year and a half. 
you know, we'd be we'd become cohesive as a band, and so we wanted to continue that into the writing process as well. Right. Now, you, of course, had spent time with Panzer and Megadeth and even toured with Nevermore. Talk to me about the challenges of putting together your own band and, and being sort of the the guiding light or the guiding ship on this one, because it's not easy in this sort of marketplace to create a new band and or brand, right? Right, correct. Well, I think um, in terms of the creation of the of the band, we you know it really comes down to just the the hunt for the members, and you know when we we found Henry and we talked to Henry about doing a demo for us, and he came back with the uh, the demo for Legion of Lies, you know, with his his unique singing style and talents in that sense, we knew that he was the guy for the band. And then as far as Matt goes, you know, I never had considered him as an option because I didn't know he played bass or anything like that. I always knew him as the uh, guitarist, vocalist, backing vocalist in... Um, in uh, uh, oh my God! I can't think of his band name right now. Shadows Fall. Right, Shadows and, Fall. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, sorry about that, Matt. Um, but at any rate, um, so he was. I always thought of him as the guitar singer in Shadows Fall, and uh, you know, and never considered him as a bass player. So when it came up that he would be a potential, Sean had brought him up as a potential for a bass player. Uh, I was like, definitely, because I'd met Matt many times before, and he's a great guy and uh, a killer musician overall, a great writer, good backing vocalist, um, and he can play the bass too. So you, you just really can't go wrong with that. Super solid. Um, and uh, so that's really was the only consideration with the, the formation of the band. It wasn't like I had any uh, criteria or anything like that in terms of I was looking for something specific. Is the band, you know, yours and Sean's where you make the decisions and, you know, Henry can come and go and Matt can come and go? Or is it sort of really you guys, you four, and that's what we're going to move forward with? I mean, you know, do we do we wake up tomorrow morning and there's a new guy because you just felt like a change? No, not at all. No, this band is a cohesive unit in that sense. You know, without any one of of the four of us, there would cease to exist um, acts of defiance. In Jagdpanzer and in Megadeth, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were probably sort of told, hey, you know, we need your guitar playing to do this on the song, or we need your guitar playing to go this way. Um, is there a lot more freedom on this one, and are there sides of you as a guitar player that we haven't seen yet that you're sort of excited to get out there? Absolutely. I think um, that, you know, I, I'm really starting to feel comfortable with the different styles and techniques that that I've been working on, you know, over the, the course of my career. And I think this album really is starting to showcase the amalgamation of those techniques into a cohesive style. Um, so I was really proud of what I was able to do with the album in, in that respect. I don't, I don't feel like I've done it in the past at least not nearly as effectively. Um, talk to me about the creative process in the sense that, from what I've understood, and maybe it's, it's, it's misguided, but you didn't have that creative freedom within Megadeth. To, you know, it was Dave's thing. How important is it for you to write your own songs and be in control of the musical vision? It's 
to me, it's extremely important. That's why I pick up the guitar in the first place. That's why I'm an artist, you know, a musician, is that I want to create and I want to express myself on the instrument. And uh, that, to me, is the biggest reason for the existence of Active Defiance. Talk to me about a little bit about joining Megadeth, because, you know, Dave has this brand, and he could have sort of picked anybody. What was it like mm-hmm. in that process getting picked up by Dave and having him say, hey, you're going to be the guy in Megadeth? For me, it was so quick. It, you know, it, I went down and met with him at his house and, um, you know, talked with him briefly. We both talked about, you know, what the expectations were and stuff like that. And from there, it was get to work because we've got less than a month before the next tour. And, you know, you've got to learn 22 songs for the set list. So for me, it was very much like, you know, once the, once the confirmation process started, it, there was no time to even think about it. It was, it was let's get to work. Let's get this done. Jagdpanzer. You spent many years with them. Mm-hmm. One of these great bands yet have always sort of had this underground or cult following uh talk to me about yeah, working yeah. with uh, you talk to me about working with them and what it's like making that first album age of mastery with them yeah i, I gotta tell you you know i was talking uh to mark actually at this point there was a brief drop off in the audio but let's get right back to chris broderick uh the two videos the two lyric videos that they have out now from the new cd and uh just tell him what a great job he had done on that and uh but it's funny, you know, I, when I joined Jack Panzer, I was so naive, you know, I was under the impression that when you joined a band, a band just is, it is its members, it is its, you know, and, and obviously through time, I've come to see that that's very not true, that, you know, bands are not defined by the people, maybe an individual or, you know, one person's idea of what it should be. And Going into Jack Panzer, there was none of that at all. You know, uh, Mark was very open with allowing me to write, even though I just joined the band. Um, I forget how many songs I had written for that CD, but um, I believe it was like three or something like that. And and uh, I think Mark just overall was very welcoming in the sense that that he had another guitarist that wanted to collaborate and work with him and uh to me it was very it was just awesome i was not like i said though i was extremely naive at the time though because i I kind of just expected that's the way it was oh i'm part of this band now so i therefore i write with them and uh i'm just glad that you know mark uh was kind enough to allow that to happen yeah, and, and in fact, that, that brings me to the next album there, which is uh, Thane to the Throne, because if you look at the writing credits, it's music by Broderick, 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 Broderick. I mean, was that sort of exceptional that you come in and they, they, they turned over everything to you and said, okay, you're going to write everything? Because that's not how a band normally operates. Well, you go sit in the corner, right? Right. Well, I, I would put it to you this way. They didn't turn everything over to me that by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think, again, it was just allowing me to collaborate and write with them. And uh, I really don't know. Um, I really don't know the percentage that I wrote on that CD, but I do know that it was 
fully um, collaborative with Mark and uh, the other members, you know, of Jag Panther. So, yeah, to me, it wasn't that they handed anything over. Like I said, I think I think Mark works extremely hard for that band, and he he not only does he usually handle the logistics of of their you know the way what they do and and their tours and stuff like that, but he also does a, a you know, the bulk of the writing for that band throughout Jack Panzer's career. And I think he was just, uh, I think he was happy to see that somebody else wanted to collaborate uh, with him. Yeah, and, and, and it turned out well. Now, Megadeth. Uh, mm-hmm. In interviews in the past, you said that it was simply time to leave. And, and, and I can respect that. We all get to parts of our lives where we just go, okay, it's time to turn right. Can't yep. keep doing this. How difficult, though, was it of a decision for you to make? Because that's something I'm sure you didn't just wake up on a Monday morning and say, I'm calling Dave, we're done. It must have been two months, three months, six months. Um, sort of walk me through yeah, the process. Yeah, probably, I mean, the process was a rather long one. Right. It, you know, it was probably over the course of a year and a half. Um, and uh, maybe longer, you know. Um, but... You know, it was it, it. just for me. It it always came down to you know weighing positives against negatives, and you know obviously being able to play for the awesome crowds, you know Megadeth crowds, and you know traveling across the globe and doing the big four shows. All of that was just you know such a huge positive, and, and I have you know, some of my most fond memories are of that time. But you know. At, at a certain point, I have to say, this is great, but, but this isn't, you know, it's, it's not based around uh, my musicality or my music writing ability. And so in a way, it felt kind of empty to me. And I think when Sean left, uh, you know, Dave was just starting to call us down to work on the next CD. And as soon as Sean quit, I knew that Sean had made the right choice because you don't want to go down and start working on a new CD when you know that your days are numbered and your heart's not in it anymore. So that ultimately made me say, hey, you know what, Sean's right. I I think I should leave as well. And that's what happened. Was there any fear associated to it? Because, you know, like you said, you're doing the big four shows, you're going around the world, the money must have been good. Do Do you sort of say, well... You know, how am I going to pay the rent next week? I mean, is there is there that kind of fear where you just say, ah, you know, okay, I'm no, not... I think the funny thing that, that most people don't understand is even while I was in Megadeth on tour, I was always teaching. I've always taught and maintained a student base. And and that has, in a large part, been my income right. than it was before, and it, and it is still right now. So... I had no worry in that sense, and I'd just gotten to the point to where I wanted to create for me. Right, which seems reasonable. Uh, you mentioned the big four, and I was going to ask you about that. Uh, you know, here you are on stage, you've got Metallica, you've got Anthrax, you've got Slayer. What was that experience like? Because this is not just, you know, we're playing a show and the local whatever is opening up for us. I mean, this is a major event. Um, and I'm assuming you probably were fans of all the bands on the bill. 
what was that like for you? You know, sort of the, the kid inside of Chris. How, how was that for you? Yeah, it was surreal, especially when we got together and did Am I Evil at the end of the night. Yeah. It was, I mean, that was where it came together for me. And I looked across the stage and I saw, you know, Hatfield and, and Kirk Hammett and, and, you know, Terry King and, you know, Scott Ian. And, you know, it's like you just keep adding them. And you're like, wow, you know, these, these guys have been toughing it out on the road for decades. And they've just been killing it night after night. And they're icons in their, in their field. And, and I'm able to play on stage with them. It was a huge honor. I can imagine. Now, uh, Old Scar's New Wounds, um, where do we go from here in terms of the, the, the touring cycle and the next album? Because... Is it important to sort of get an album out every two years and sort of keep the music fresh and keep building that fan base? Or is it, okay, we've done this, these first two, Birth and Burial and this one, let's tour for the next five years if we can? Well, no, I I think, you know, we're going to look at it in terms of, um, you know, what what the fans want, really. Like, I think you know, the first thing we want to do is get out and bring the music to the fans. So we'll we're definitely going to tour as much as possible on this CD. And I think when we see that interest in, in this music, you know, starting to calm down a little bit, then we'll start looking at the creation of the next CD. And I would assume that it would probably maintain a roughly two year cycle. That's just, it's an assumption totally, but it's, you know, it's not uncommon to um, kind of maintain that kind of a cycle, you know, you, you of course left Megadeth to have the creative control. Is Act of Defiance sort of the be-all and end-all for you? Or do we see sort of a Chris Broderick solo album? Do we see you venturing off into something else to, to get fully fulfilled? Or is this sort of, no, this is the project and this is what I'm sticking to? Well, I think this is, uh, you know, with the, with the members of Act of Defiance, they bring things to the to the table that I couldn't do on my own, and so within more of a traditional band structure, I will. Bet. At this point, the uh, cell audio on Chris's phone dropped off uh, pretty much for good, so I thank him and I wrapped up the interview. Certainly hope you enjoyed what you got to hear, and uh, please uh, join me on Twitter at Mitch Lafon. Thank you. I'm, I'm having an exceptionally hard time hearing um, your answers. They they keep to they keep dropping out. Um, but uh, Chris, a, a great pleasure and uh, all the best with Active Defiance. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, cheers. Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, 
and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.